how do you deal with rebellion? How do you respond when the people who should be obeying and respecting your authority instead rebel against you? Well, if the rebels we're talking about are your kids, then depending on their age, or you might have to take out the cane, or as I threaten my son, no running man for one year. Now, if the rebels are your employees, then when it gets bad enough, you just have to fire them and get new help in. And if the rebels are a minority group in a country that's opposing your re-election as president, then you send in the army and the tanks, right? as many dictators have done. Now, what is happening in 2 Corinthians is that effectively the church in Corinth has rebelled against Paul, their founder, their apostle. People who should have acknowledged and respected his authority has instead rejected his leadership. So how will Paul respond to this rebellion? Well, essentially the letter of 2 Corinthians that we've been working our way through and now come to its end, that is his response, a large part of it. And here in chapter 13, as we come to the end of the letter, we see Paul's final push, his final push in his response to this rebellion. And we may discern there are three parts, three parts to his response. So if you open the bulletin, you might find the outline there helpful. Uh, There's the warning, there's the exam, and there is the grace. Please pray with me uh, that God may help us to understand this part of His Word. Father, we come with confidence because You are a merciful and gracious God and You have revealed Yourself in Your Son and in Your Word and by Your Spirit You help us to see and to understand. And so we, we stand confident that this day as we have gathered together, You will open our minds to your truth. Please, plant it deep in us that it might renew our minds, uh, transform our lives, that we might walk in its light. Help us, Father. Thank you. In Jesus' name. So firstly, the warning. Look with me to verse 1 and 2. This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier and any of the others. You see, he reminds them again that he's coming and that it will be his third visit. His first visit was the founding of the church. His second visit was what he calls the painful visit where they rejected him. And now, after writing two Corinthians to them, he's ready to come the third time. Now the question is, why does Paul quote Deuteronomy 19? You know, every matter must be established by two or three witnesses. Well, he is warning them that when he comes next, he will carry out judgment. And the judgment will be carried out in a fair and impartial manner. He assures them that he will not entertain any charge without substantial evidence. It will be fair. There will be justice. 
And verse 2 tells us, He will be unsparing. I will not spare anyone who sinned earlier. I will not spare any of the others. There will be judgment. There will be discipline. Now at this point, we will do well to remind ourselves just what was the problem in Corinth. The church in Corinth, due to the influence of false teachers, had adopted a view of Christianity. A wrong view of Christianity that emphasized strength. And it was strength as the world defines strength. So, uh, true Christians should not have to suffer uh, and should not have to be weak. It is beneath the dignity of a true Christian to face suffering. And there was also the expectation that uh, the leaders would be impressive people who could speak well and uh, be a picture of power. And so there was encouragement for leaders to boast unashamedly, to, to blatantly boast about their aesthetic spiritual experiences. Now the reason why I remind us of this is because the problem that faced the Corinthian church is still a problem that the church faces today. Today, there are still parts of the church that is infected with the same disease. Now, I take it that many of you would have come across uh, the video of Kong Ki sharing about uh, what God spoke to him. And even just before service started, uh, Kim Lam and James was uh, telling people about it. So if you don't know, uh, Kong Ki is the senior pastor of City Harvest Church. And was it last year he was uh, charged, or you know, accused, uh, you know, I don't, I don't think the trial has happened yet. He's accused, he and a few members of his church have been accused of, what do you call it, George? Creative accounting uh, to the tune of 20 over million dollars. And so obviously he's going through a hard time and he shared, and this was a video that was uh, uploaded, how God, after eight months of silence, now finally speaks to him. And uh, essentially God says, you know, like Jesus, Kong Ki has to go through this trial and suffering alone. And, and it needs to be done so that uh, Kong Ki and City Harvest Church can be the man and the ministry that God calls it to be. And then God says, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that you have to go through this alone. You see, in this version of Christianity, suffering is so out of place. Suffering is so unusual, so beneath the dignity of the great Christian leader that when, when he does go through suffering, God has to say sorry. What do we read in Romans 5? Rejoice in suffering. That's true Christianity because in suffering, in our weakness, God powerfully at work. Now on a separate note, this confirms I think that whoever it is that spoke to Konki, he cannot be the God of the Bible. Because nowhere here does God say sorry. Not to Jesus, not to anyone. Whoever it is that is speaking to Konki, it cannot be, in my opinion, the God of the Bible. Let's carry on with chapter 13. Now Paul explains why he is acting this way, why, why he will not spare anyone. Because, verse 
3 and 4. Look with me. He says, I will not spare anyone. Verse 3, since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power, we will live with him in our dealing with you. So you see, the church had demanded proof. You know, are you, Paul, are you really a true apostle of Christ? And so Paul responds, Okay, you want proof? Okay, you want to see me display power to, to confirm I'm Christ's apostle? Well, if it's power you want to see, I assure you, you will get more than what you bargain for. And what Paul is referring to is the display of Christ's power, not in great miracles and, you know, a, a raw display of power, but a display of power in bringing judgment and enforcing discipline. And he goes on to affirm that Christ is not weak in dealing with them, but is powerful. Because behind Paul stands the glorified and risen Christ. Their opposition of Paul has been opposition to Christ. And Christ is powerful. He is not weak. He is powerful and he will not let the sins of the Corinthian church Go on forever. Paul then goes on in verse 4 to draw a parallel between Jesus and himself. So Jesus was weak on the cross, but after that, the power that was seen uh, in, in the resurrection was displayed. So similarly, Paul too was weak. And he was so weak that he was despised by the Corinthians. But just as God's power was displayed in Jesus after weakness, so God's power is now displayed in Paul after weakness. That's why he says, uh, verse 4, Likewise, we are weak in him. Yet by God's power, we will live with him in our dealing with you. Now, what does that mean? The key, I think, is in the phrase, in our dealing with you. Now, how is Paul going to deal with them? Well, he's going to deal with them by bringing down judgment and enforcing discipline on those who are unrepentant. And so, Paul says he will do this, you know, deal with the unrepentant by the power of God. You see, previously, Paul was looked down on by the Corinthians for his lack of power. Now, he says, he is ready to show power and it will be the power to enforce discipline and bring about judgment. Now, I labor this point because it's important to understand what Paul means here so that we can make sense of what he says later. And what we do see here, in part, is Paul's determination to bring his full apostolic authority against those who are unrepentant. And so this is the first part of his response. His response to rebellion. He gives them the warning of coming judgment and discipline. The second part of his response is the exam. Go with me to verse 5 and the first part of it. He says, Examine yourselves 
to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. Well, you see, we in Singapore, we are very familiar with exams, right? Now, in fact, if you didn't know this, it was the Chinese who invented exams uh, for the imperial exam, uh, whatever. And so, when I was in Bible College after my first year, I want to let you know that I was given an award. I was given an award by the rest of the students, by my peers, for being the student that was most able. Okay, most able. You might be proud of me for this, you know, sent from your church. I I was given an award for being the student that was most able to get tips from the lecturers about what's coming up for the exam. Because Singapore has trained me so well. I'm so exam smart. And you see, in God's kindness, the tips I was able to, to squeeze up from the lecturers, for many of the other students, uh, it meant the difference between passing and failing. For me, it was the difference between uh, distinction and high distinction. Uh, but <coughs> no, Sorry, I shouldn't have mentioned that. <coughs> it, it's not in the notes. It just came out. I'm so sorry. You see, it, it makes a world of difference when you know what's coming out for the exam. And so when Paul here calls on them to examine and test themselves, what's an exam? What's going to be tested? Now, there are some people who actually say, oh, Paul doesn't tell us. And so when they, when they teach on this passage, they got to refer to uh, the first letter of John. You know, where if you know 1 John, John gives three tests to know whether you're a Christian. And you've got to turn to 1 John. But, but there's no need for that. Because the test, the test is actually 2 Corinthians. The test is, are they going to accept all that the apostle has written in this letter? The test is, are they going to fully acknowledge him as their apostle and fully accept the message he proclaims. That's the test. And basically when Paul says, okay, you know, test yourselves, and and don't you realize Jesus is in you. He is in you. uh, Unless you fail the test. And I trust that you will discover we have not failed the test. Now, what's happening here is basically Paul has moved his knight and he has said, checkmate, checkmate, checkmate on the Corinthians. Because if the Corinthians say, okay, test myself, yes, I passed the test. If they pass the test, it means Paul, as their apostle, has also passed the test. So you see, if they give a positive verdict on themselves, by inference, they have to give a positive verdict on the one who brought them the gospel and founded the church. So, see, they got no way out. They're in a corner. Unless they, unless they fail themselves, then, okay, no point talking. But if they pass themselves, then Paul is also passed as an authentic apostle. And so if he is an authentic apostle, then Corinthians, acknowledge him. Come back to him. See, that's the point he's making. In other words, Paul's call for them to examine themselves 
It's a call to help them, urge them along on the road to repentance. Now, how should we think about Paul's call to examine ourselves in our own lives today? Now, one thing we need to say is that it is not uncommon to find Christians. Christians who have examined themselves and who fear that they have failed the test. They fear that they have committed the unforgivable sin or, or, or the weight of daily failures is too heavy to bear. They fear that the Holy Spirit is not present in their lives. In other words, they lack assurance of salvation. Now, if what I've described fits you, then can I suggest two things? Number one, can you talk to a mature Christian about this? Don't struggle alone. There's nothing pisy about this. Okay, go to a mature Christian that you trust. If you can't find anyone, come to Andrew and me. <clears throat> there's, there's nothing to be ashamed about. Okay, talk to someone about this. That's, that's number one. And number two, can I say that if you are genuinely fearful that you are not saved, if you are genuinely fearful that you are not saved, then it means, generally speaking, that you are, in fact, saved. Because those who do not have the Spirit of God in them, those who are not truly born again, they, they cannot be bothered. They, they, they cannot give two hoots whether they are really saved or not saved. Only those who have the Spirit of God working in them are, con are convicted and, and aware of their sin and burdened by it. So if you are genuinely fearful, then I think it is, uh, generally speaking, a good indicator that you are, in fact, saved. Now, if there is a danger of people who are saved, thinking they are not saved, then there is a greater danger of people who are not saved, thinking they are saved. Just because a person has prayed the sinner's prayer, or has been baptized, or is a regular member of a church, or has grown up in a Christian home, none of these things, none of these things is any guarantee that a person is genuinely converted and possesses eternal life. Now listen carefully, this could be you. Salvation is too important to take for granted. We need to know for sure. Are we saved or not? That's why Paul's call, examine yourself, is so crucial to hear in our day. So examine yourself. We must, we must ask ourselves these questions. Do I really believe what the Bible says? Is this God's word? Do I tremble before this? Or when push comes to shove, is my opinion the one that will trump what's written here? Uh, do I trust in Jesus? Do I have confidence in His finished work on the cross on my behalf? Or is instead my, my hope and my confidence on my good deeds, my, my track record, what I do for God? And how do I respond when I sin? Am I indifferent? unmoved to my failures? Do I tend to make excuses for my sinful desires? 
Or do I recognize that nothing in my hand I bring? But it is simply to the cross that I must cling. So again, if there is someone that you need to talk to about any of this, please don't hesitate, don't feel ashamed. Salvation is too important to take for granted. Now I need to explain verse 7, as some of you may be wondering what uh, Paul means there. Verse 7, Paul says, Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong. Not so that people will see that we have stood the test, but so that you will do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. Now, the do what is right, don't do what is wrong there, obviously, is what Paul has called on them to do in 2 Corinthians. Do what's right, as I've written to you. Right? Don't do what's wrong. Don't, don't move away from what I've written to you. Don't move away from the message. And he says, if you do what is right, I am not asking that this happens for you so that I, Paul, would have passed the test. Rather, you know, I would, I would rather you, you not do anything wrong, even though we would have failed. Now, what he means there is, if they do what is right, it means that he doesn't have to come with the power of Christ to bring judgment. And if he doesn't come with the power of Christ to bring judgment, it means that he has no way to prove that Christ is truly speaking uh, behind him. He has no way to prove he is an authentic apostle. So in that way, he would have failed the test. But it, is, it doesn't matter. It's not my reputation or, or how people see me that I care. I'd rather you pass the test, you do what is right, so I don't have opportunity to kabam, you know? And then everyone knows, ah, oh, okay, he has Christ's power behind him. I'd rather you do what is right, and then when I come the third time, we just have tea together and read the Bible. There's no discipline, no judgment that needs to be brought down. He rather their good rather than his uh, reputation be built up. Now, I, I, like I said, I need to explain that so that you all don't wonder. But did you notice that here in verse 7 contains the third part of Paul's response to rebellion? What is it? What is the third part of his response? His first part was, he warns, second part, he calls them to self-examination. The third part, he prays. He prays for them. He prays that they will do uh, no wrong. He prays that they may be fully restored. Verse 9. See, to appreciate this, uh, we must remember this is a church that has turned against him. This is a church that has criticized him from top to bottom, left to right. This is, you know, in, in this situation, when you face a church like that, if you are the apostle, it's easy to say, I'm going to come and I'm warning you of judgment. In this situation, it's easy to say, guys, you better examine yourself. What is not easy is to sincerely and consistently pray for them. But that is exactly what Paul does. Because Paul recognizes that any true change, any real repentance, any growth in maturity can only come from the hand of God. 
And so if we recognize it like Paul, we will know that it is not enough to simply warn, not enough to simply call people to examine themselves. We must also sincerely and consistently pray. Now I want to consider this third part of Paul's response by focusing on verse 14. Now verse 14 is uh, what we hear every week. We call it the benediction. And the benediction simply means, you know, the, 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 the blessing. But uh, in truth, verse 14 is one of many benedictions that's found in the Bible. So, um, it is better referred to as the grace, you know, so other churches call it the grace because of the first two words. So let's look at the grace, verse 14. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. What an amazing way to end the letter. After all that has happened, after all that that still may yet come, what Paul desires for them, what Paul prays for them, what Paul wishes for them is this. Is this. And nothing less. Why does Paul desire this and nothing less for them? Because what he prays for is the life-changing, practical power from each person of the Trinity to be experienced in them. Anything less and there would be no change. Anything less and there could be no change. And so he prays that they may experience the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of Christ that though he was rich, yet for their sakes he became poor so that they by his poverty might become rich. He prays for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that, that, that Jesus himself said, My grace is sufficient for you, for his power is made perfect in weakness. He prays for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that shows us, that shows us as nothing else can, what truly needy sinners we are that shuts the door to any self-centered version of Christianity. Next, he prays that they may know and experience the love of God. The love that God the Father has for God the Son has now overflowed into his people. Jesus says in John 17, and he's praying to the Father and he says this, the world will know that you sent me. Okay? The world will know that the Father sent the Son and, and that you have loved them even as you have loved me. See, that's the purpose of God, that the love He has for the Son should be shared, should be overflowed into God's people. That the love He has for the Son is the same love He now has for his people, he, Paul prays that, that the church might know and experience this love. This, this love of God that is secure. 
that is not up and down, you know, changing depending on our performance. It's secure, it's stable, it's unchanging. It is amazing. Amazing grace, amazing love. But that's not all, because Paul goes on to pray that they may also know and experience the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. It is, it is knowing the indwelling presence of God. It is God with us by His Spirit. It is knowing the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit and living in daily dependence on that power. And it is also having the unity, the unity of fellowship that the Holy Spirit brings that we now have with each other. It is a reality of the Holy Spirit in us that makes possible the obedience to what Paul has commanded in verse 11. Be of one mind. Encourage one another. Live in peace. Friends, there you have it. The three parts to Paul's response to rebellion. He warns, he calls for self-examination. And you must recognize that Paul took the necessary but painful steps. He, he saw there was a problem. He saw there was a disease in the Corinthian church. And because he loved the church, because he saw what, how, how serious the problem was, he took the necessary steps. It was not easy. It's not painful to write to people like this and say these things. But he took the necessary steps even though it was painful. But he did not stop there. He did not stop there because he prays. He prays for them and he, he desires for them that grace, love and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit might be in them. It is a whole package. And you see, ultimately, ultimately, Paul's confidence, Paul's confidence that change and repentance will happen comes from the life transforming reality of who God in three persons is. And it is a, a life transforming reality that he himself has experienced. Friends, our own confidence to see change. You know, I don't know about you, but sometimes if you've been a Christian long enough, there are seasons when you look at your own life and there is frustration. Why am, why am I not growing more? Why do I still struggle with these same sins? When, when will God bring about a change? How long will this go on? There can be frustration at the slow pace. Friends, our confidence must be in who God is. Three persons offering grace in the Lord Jesus, offering love in the Father, offering the indwelling presence of the Spirit. Our confidence must be in God. Not in what program the church is able to do, not in what great self-discipline I am able to master, not because I belong to this uh, famous church. It must 
be in this God. And so friends, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you and me, now and forever. Amen.